happening now. You're listening to the Education Technology Situation Room on Tuesday, June 28th, 2016, coming to you from the ISTE Conference in Denver, Colorado. Hello and welcome to an audio recorded version of a EdTech Situation Room podcast that Jason Neifer and I recorded yesterday at the ISTE conference. Unfortunately, we we were able to live broadcast via Blab and have Adam Rogers uh, join us live from Oklahoma City. But something glitched in the recording, and I am so thankful that I have this audio recording of almost the entire thing. But I actually hit the record button about maybe a minute and a half into our podcast discussion, and so I will go ahead and cut over to that and also let you know that we've been having some difficulty with Blab lately, and so we are probably going to um, look at, at switching platforms and doing something a little bit different, either with a Google Hangout or the recorded Skype or with something else. But without further ado, here is our podcast recorded from just on the edge of the Bloggers Cafe at the Downtown Convention Center in Denver, Colorado on Tuesday, June 28th, 2016. 16. Um, really has a, a, a large number of attendees every year, and I think a growing number each year as well. And Denver has the advantage over uh, times when it's a coastal um, uh, event that it really does pick up people from all parts of, of the country. So lots of folks here. Um, it's intense as it always is, and we've managed to find an interesting venue. We are kind of in the corner of the Bloggers Cafe, so there is, um, we're literally kind of up against a wall. We've repurposed some furniture to prop up our, our broadcast laptop here, and as always, um, super interesting, um, you know, making it work, which is, you know, how you do things in tech. Right? Absolutely, yeah, and for the record, we, um, there's a little aggregator thing. It's called, what, what do we say, what's MIDI setup or something like mm-hmm. that? Um, audio MIDI setup on the Mac. And so, uh, yep, we have the earbuds and a one USB microphone, and we hope we're recording. So, uh, Jason, for people who don't know, how, how do you describe our show now that we're at 15 episodes? Well, uh, the EdTech Situation Room is an almost weekly conversation where Wes and I go through some of the latest news, uh, both in the, the, the technology world and then sometimes specifically the ed tech world and talk about its impact on schools. And 15 episodes in, we're, we're definitely starting to find our voice. Um, we are uh, uh, starting to pick stories, I think, that are really core to schools. We're getting great feedback from our viewers. And of course, if you listen to the podcast and you like it, please feel free to rate us on iTunes, uh, find us on Stitcher Radio. You can go to edtechsr.com and see episodes there. We're also on YouTube. And every one of your thumbs up or comments or other pieces of information are very useful to us, both as Feedback for the show, and then help others uh, discover our particular podcast. Yes, and we'd like to welcome Adam Rogers, yay, from Oklahoma City. Glad to have you joining, Adam. Adam is uh, one of our Ed Camp. Look, it's the Ed Camp OKC shirt. He's one of our, our organizers, so he's he's in the not at ISTE crew. Um, well, gosh, where do we want to begin? For usually, and you can go to like we'll, we'll put the show notes on here after the fact. This time at edtechsr.com/links, you can see the Google Doc where we have uh, put the put the notes. And there's a lot to talk about just because announcements have have been made. I, I think we probably should start with Google. They had four big yes. announcements. Yep. So of those, which, which one are you most excited about? And we'll talk about those well, in order. Maybe I would say that that that. Uh, uh, 
the one that's most interesting to me, just from a personal standpoint, probably is the uh, Google uh, Google Vent or Google Adventures uh, evolution, where they're now kind of going all in for VR for education expeditions. and expeditions. Thank you, and I think that's uh, obviously a very uh, a very big draw for a world where visual conceptions are an important part of this process. So we really um, uh, uh, think about this term in terms of um, providing experiences for students in the context of my day job uh, with the State Virtual School in Montana. And we um, think that at some point this could turn into something really big for us because we are always thinking about ways to you know, really impress a student. I think it's difficult in, a, uh, in an online school environment sometimes to do a lot of the wow factors that sometimes a, a gifted face-to-face -face teacher can do. And I think something like a virtual reality system could really make a big difference regarding that process. So um, I, I, th I thought all the announcements were super interesting, but I think um, Google Expeditions will really make a, a big impact eventually on classrooms, whether they're face-to-face -face classrooms or virtual classrooms. And for those of you that don't know, I just happen to have in my bag a set of the Google Cardboard glasses. This is a plastic version, which Eric Langhorst had recommended and so your your phone actually slides in here like this and then you you have it's like like the viewmaster but with the with the iPhone and this last year um, ordered several of these to be able to use at school but honestly it was frustrating we were not selected for the beta for Google Expeditions so we had access to some different content my favorite is a movie called Clouds Over Sidra which is a uh, virtual reality video documentary written from the perspective of a 12 year old in a Syrian refugee camp and part of the goal of that it was a, a collaboration with the United Nations was to help kids develop more empathy for the Syrian refugee crisis and you know probably refugee crises you know in general difficulty there is that video yes it could stream but you have try to have multiple people doing that kind of hard it's over a gigabyte in size to download you have to have a fairly new um, you know smartphone to and you can't use an iPad you can't put an iPad in this so on a practicality side <clears throat> I, I shared that with some of our service learning students and others that are involved in, in doing service projects and and they did a, a big fundraiser with the Bezos Foundation that was raising money for, for refugees but it just wasn't practical to say, hey, let's take a class on a virtual field trip. Um, I did have some of our foreign language teachers uh, show the Parthenon in Greece and some of the other things, I think, in uh, the Google Maps app uh, with places. But some of that you can kind of just do on the phone. You don't, you don't have to have the cardboard. So I'm excited that it is mainstream. And what that means is that you don't have to be selected as a school to do it. You can download the Expeditions app. It's available. And we will be playing with that this year. Right. Um, Jason, where do you where do you see that fitting in the curriculum? Or what, what are your first thoughts as far as where Google Expeditions is going to make an impact? I'm a former history teacher. And so what I think about is my own experiences teaching about areas and then sitting in those areas as, as a tourist and an explorer and what difference that made for me. The, the three examples I can think about first... Um, sitting in the, the Louvre the first time and it, studying art is one thing, experiencing art is quite another and I think literally being able to sit around and look around and be able to experience a location in that way would be absolutely stunning. Um, the first day I, I explored the Normandy uh, beaches, uh, the landing beaches for, for D-Day, having studied that area for years, having seen videos, both fiction and non-fiction depicting that and then sitting on that beach and being able to look around and see the various pieces uh, um, and the distances between point A and point B would be it, it really extraordinary. But the one place that 
Um, and, and I think of this in terms, I've heard a lot of folks talking about the power of allowing students to, um, to, to record, um, you know, VR pictures and videos. Um, but I think that part of what the lure to me here is not students per se, although obviously they're the key, but instead thinking of it in terms of giving people access to places they otherwise wouldn't be able to go. So the one I think about is sitting in the Colosseum in Rome, and there are places in the Colosseum you can get actually fairly deep down into the uh, former underground of, of the arena, and you can you can see some of those passages. But standing in the, the flat center on top of one of the pillars and putting a VR camera there and taking a high definition VR picture of that environment and allowing students to go there and see the sheer size of that and the the, the majestic uh, architecture of that particular piece. That is unparalleled other than standing there yourself. And if you go to the Coliseum, you can't stand in that position, right? Like that's something that a, um, a, a VR camera can do, whereas the vast majority of people can't. Right. So that's where my mind goes to almost every time. Yeah. Uh, I helped one of our French teachers last year who was who was brainstorming a ePals uh, writing project mm -hmm. with a class in France, and they had done some different things. And we tried to use Bubbly, which is a, a 360-degree app for the iPhone that I like a lot. Unfortunately, it didn't run on the iPad, but there was this idea of creating photospheres around our campus to try to give the other students an idea about you know where we live in Oklahoma and what it's like, and then hooking it up to a geomap. And he's done this several times, and so... I'm immediately thinking, hey, I, I want to go to him, and I just learned, and I should know who I was told this from, that the, the Maps app now in Google on the iPhone allows you to create uh, that kind of photosphere experience. So some of this doesn't require a special device and, and glasses, but, um, you know, this gets to a transformative level and an immersive level that's different than what we can just have on, on a regular screen. And I guess I'm also, of course, not surprised, uh, interested in students creating. And so yep. thinking about, hey, we're going on a field trip to the Arbuckle Mountains in, you know, southern um, southern Oklahoma. How are we going to document that? Maybe we'll add, you know, 360-degree photospheres. And then, you know, thinking about how narration can go with that. And, and, you know, that can be a way to create virtual experiences for others, you know, not merely consume. So it's yep. back to that consuming, producing. Absolutely. Um, then, I guess probably in my mind, the second uh, interesting announcement from Google is the fact that they will allow now casting from machine to machine with a plug-in to Google Classroom. And at first I misread this. I thought that they were just doubling down on the Chromecast in an educational uh, uh, way. That's not what's happening at all. In fact, what they're doing is, is much more exciting. Um, essentially, it's going to allow a teacher's machine um, or a, a classroom machine to be a receiver for casted devices, whether it's, I'm assuming it's it's an Android device or maybe at some point uh, uh, device. iOS it's devices. Through, it's through Google Classroom. It's, yeah. So, um, uh, the fact that you can, as effortlessly as you can use a Chromecast to, to cast a screen to a large monitor, you can now do that in a controlled environment so you can invite students to be part of whatever's being broadcast out to a room. So it does something that, um, you know, I've seen this implemented in iOS classrooms when Apple TV is set up well or they've kind of hacked Apple TV to be more accessible on a network, but you don't really get a lot of control doing that as a teacher. Now you can kind of orchestrate a learning experience.
experience where students can be working either independently or in groups and then have their screen cast back to a master screen if you want to show off uh, an excellent example of something or um, a student struggling through work that, that wants the, the input of a larger group. And I think it adds even more power to that, that really particular platform. But the, the really amazing part for me, and I think this was a very smart on Google's part, no hardware is required. Like all you need to do is your existing hardware um, in order to um, uh, uh, create um, a, a linkage between you and your students. And they also suggested, and I think this is this is probably true, that um, that no like fancy networking is required. That uh, instead, um, if you've ever used an Apple TV on a large enterprise network, if you ever used a Chromecast on a large enterprise network, or a place like ISTE, for yeah, a, yeah, for a conference, yeah, yeah, good example of this, right? That apparently there's a way to to work around some of the difficulties of you know getting across the room on a wireless network, having so, a separate VLAN and segmenting it so that your AirPlay traffic is not you know colliding with everything else on the yep. network. So that that's really exciting, and um, you know, and I, um, and Wes and I have had this conversation a couple of times now, both on and off the air. That um, you know, I love my I love my, my iPad, I love uh, Windows, Mac machines, I love the full function desktop environment. But the Chromebook is becoming more and more attractive as a you know a, a, a daily driver device for students that are just want a workforce to to engage with with with, with one another, with content, with the teacher, and I think that's a pretty powerful platform. Absolutely. Um, and Adam, since you're joining us live, feel free to, to uh, check in any questions you have or if there's anything that you've heard about at ISTE or whatever. You could even join us live if you wanted to. You can you can click to uh, to join the seat if you uh, would love, well, would be willing to participate. We really haven't had very many people take us up on that. Yeah. And we're talking about how we're going to move forward with this because our, for the record also, our last show, we think because uh, one of us was on a Chromebook, um, actually, it was a bit, yeah, it may, may have been slowed as we were kind of stepping on each other in the recording. So, anyway, we have a backup. So, those were the first two. There was a couple other uh, announcements. The second one I think is really interesting, and that is a bundled set of web-based apps that you can now purchase at the time you get your Chromebook or license later that it includes Explain Everything, uh, Soundtrap, and Wii Video. So, you know, one of the challenges with the Chrome device relative to an iPad, let's say, as a one-to-one -one, uh, choice, or even a laptop uh, that's full-blown, is the, the idea of creation and creating content and then having, you know, viable cloud-based tools that allow you to create and publish audio, create and publish video. There's been some huge steps forward in the last year or two with YouTube, for instance, where now you can upload to YouTube um, there's a YouTube uh, Creator Studio, and you can do trimming and some editing of videos. You can pull in Creative Commons licensed video that other people have published. If you don't follow Mr. Sill, his name is Jim Sill. He is with the AgTech team now. He, he uh, actually worked in Hollywood, producing films, and then taught high school broadcast journalism. And now he shares, you know, as an evangelist for digital video with the AgTech team at Google Summits. But um, Jim is one I've seen, you know, do some great, great creative stuff with with shots and framing, but then using web-based tools like YouTube, but also WeVideo. And WeVideo is a licensed platform, and so 
you know, one of my favorite things to say at conferences now is that pencils, well, video is the pencil of the 21st century. Just as we would never think twice, except in a juvenile detention situation, probably, that Kevin Hennigan can tell us about uh, doing his art lessons as he has. I, I, I went there once, and there were rubber pencils. We, we were thinking twice about pencils, but except for, you know, some situations, we don't think at all about getting paper and pencil out, it really needs to be the same way with video. So I'm excited to see this and explain everything, which is one of those three apps. I haven't used Soundtrap, um, but, but definitely explain everything. That's one of the go-to apps that at our school, I wanna purchase for every iPad. If a teacher has an iPad, we wanna volume purchase it. We just heard the Explain Everything founders last week at iPad Palooza talk about their new app, which they had to do a completely new code base, but it's collaborative. So we can be on the same slide together synchronously doing a sketch note, building a slide. And so I just, they are, it, it's so powerful in terms of using, you know, images, videos, um, recording yourself, screencasting. So I, I think that it's hugely exciting. And so I think I'm, I'm excited about the casting. Uh, Adam, it is um, the ex explain everything. So they have a new app for uh, iPad that they couldn't just update their existing app. They had to do a, a new app. So, um, and we'll put in the show notes or maybe we can tweet it out as one of us is talking. Um, they've, I, I had seen them moving to the web and wondered what they were going to do with this. But basically, it's it's allowing you on your Chromebook to create. And there are some Chromebooks out there that have uh, touch surfaces. I just talked to, to Doug Johnson yesterday, uh, Blue Skunk blog, probably one of the most experienced uh, and longtime bloggers in the edgy blogosphere. And, and they have... Uh, I think it's the Acer 7s that have a touchscreen uh, surface for their Chromebooks. And so, you know, you could have kids, you know, with a stylus and not just, you know, using their finger on a trackpad, doing some drawing and stuff like that for, for sketch notes or other things. But I, I guess I would, I'm going to say I'm more, ex the, the casting is exciting, but I am even more excited about creative production opportunities on the Chromebook, maybe, than, than yep. anything else. Well, and I think that, that uh, something that's, that's become really clear to me is that in the last five years, you really can be just web-based. And every time um, uh, any of the platforms, I don't care if you're talking about Microsoft or, or, or Apple or the Chrome platform, you can you know, re-up the, the functionality of those devices. The iPads also exist in this way, too. Um, I don't think, despite the efforts of, of people, and, and, and Wes is a good example of this, to reframe the iPad as a creation device, it's incredible power to do so. Um, every time we, we expand out more functionality for these pieces, it gives more people options to then use the technology to, to create and to publish and to connect. And I think that's 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 definitely to, to all of our advantages. And Adam, uh, by the way, there's a, I was in a show the other day uh, with Skype, and they were doing all these hand signals with each other, so they were like able to, it was kind of distracting, actually. So we, we, we can like yeah. nudge each other East right side. Down. So yeah, We're going to throw down some stuff. No. Uh, is our, if, let us know if our audio sounds okay. We, we tested it prior, um, but hopefully our, our rig is setting up. And we want to welcome C, who is a coach, joining us. And if you'd like to uh, drop any questions or comments into the chat, feel free to do that. Um, we are we're broadcasting from Denver, Colorado from the ISTE conference and we've just really kind of started with some of the, the Google announcements. The fourth of the of the uh, 
it's not a triumvirate, like the quad or whatever <laughs> of, of announcements that they did, had to do with Google Forms and quizzes. And so what's the tool that, that you've been able to do this with before? There's an this add-on. Flubaroo. Flubaroo, yeah. yeah, that you can make an auto-grading quiz. Right. So anyway, yeah, auto-grading quizzes built in. Um, I haven't used the polling features that they, they added to Google Slides. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of like, eh, that, that, that's okay. It, but what, what is fantastic, of course, is that Google is continuing to develop and iterate and make these tools, um, you know, not not just more complex because that can be a negative, but right. more useful and and you know more uh, more valuable in the classroom. And, right. and, and and the partnership. And, and by the way, shout out to the uh, EdTech Teacher Group, which is based out of Boston, because in the announcement they partnered with Google uh, in the development specifically of these three creation apps that they're doing together. So yeah, I think it's I think it's good stuff. Now, I want to add one last thing regarding the um, the evolution of Google Classroom and the education tool set. I do think that they are listening very closely to end users. Um, I was able to hear Richard Atchi from Google uh, at the NCC conference in um, Seattle this past February, and a lot of things they weren't prepared to announce yet. And I, based on, on the kind of categories of things he was talking about, my guess is there will be more Google Classroom announcements, more Google Docs announcements before the end of summer as schools start to roll out the tool uh, uh, for refurbishment in the fall. But um, it, it seems like that they really are listening to end users quite a bit and evolving. And in fact, the, I, I do feel like that it's true of really all the major platforms right now that it, the, the voice of education seems to be uh, quite uh, powerful and is, is working like uh, you know I, I, the Microsoft education tool suite it's really clear that that obviously they want to be a competitor to Google but then they're starting to you know I, I think better pay attention to the end users and creating functional tools for that the same is true of Apple with the evolution of the iPad as of late um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, education has always been a, a big market for technology companies, but we're starting to enter, I, I think, kind of a golden age of uh, you know responsive vendors um, as as it regards the needs of, of actual classroom environments. And it's economically possible now to go one to one for a lot of districts. It's a um, an interesting piece of the process to you know pick these tools and vet them out. But yeah, very very encouraging um, uh, uh, announcements this week. On the topic of one-to-one, uh, probably the best thing about ISTE is, of course, face-to-face connections and being able to, to have conversations and break bread and uh, all that. And we had a chance to have dinner with Scott McLeod from Iowa um, Sunday night, I guess. And uh, over 200 districts in Iowa, I think it's something like 220, have gone one-to-one in the past four or five years. And Scott needs to write, others need to write this story because it hasn't been published my knowledge yet. So much of it has to do with educational leadership training and bringing superintendents and principals together. Um, but there is no panacea for transformative change. And some of the districts in Iowa, as well as probably other places, but they've, they've gone one-to-one because their neighboring district has gone, not necessarily because they were ready to change their battle schedule and change their curriculum and, and really look at transforming and, and evolving what they do on a day-to-day basis in their classrooms. And so I think it's more incumbent on us than ever to focus on pedagogy and what do you want to what do you want to create? What do you want to make? You know, how do you want to interact? Not just looking at that substitution lower level of integration because it is becoming much more viable for us. Yeah. I mean, 
here's how I frame it. In 2009, we had the netbooks, right? We were talking OLPC at ISTE, the One Laptop Per Child Project from Nicholas Negroponte and, and MIT. Uh, lots of excitement over, wow, look at these devices that are so much more affordable that we can put in more hands. Well, the problem was they kind of sucked. <laughs> they yeah. weren't powerful enough speed-wise to do what they needed to do, and the web had not matured in terms of cloud-based services and what we could do for collaboration and sharing right. and, and learning management systems, so many different things. Well, today in 2016, you know, seven years later, we're in a really different place with processing speed and with the cloud and with apps. Now, I did just come from iPad Palooza last week, and I've got to tell you, I'm more energized than ever about sketch noting, about narrative sketch notes, about ways in which you know we as learners, students in our classrooms, you know, to take content and can process it and really create something that's that's it's challenging to make, but it can really give that better window into what the student knows and and understands and can do. That being said, I'm, I'm thinking about Chromebooks, I'm thinking about our own school and, and, and all of these things. I, I talked to a superintendent this morning uh, who was, you know, they're almost two to one with Chromebooks and iPads. And this is, an, this is a, a Western Oklahoma school district. And, and it, you know, so there's the digital divide, right? Yeah. There's a district that's almost two to one, iPads, Chromebooks, and, you know, a lot of us are not, you know, BYOG. Right. So, anyway, well, I, I, it's, it's an exciting day. Right. Even, I mean, 2009 was exciting, but I think there was a lot of disappointment, yeah. and there was some buy-in that people, you know, had, and then they got the, the devices, and they didn't do what they were hoping. And today's a, a different right. day, I think. Well, and, and I think it also makes the point that, that it doesn't get said enough, and, and, no, and no one says this on, on, a, on a vendor floor, but it's not Chromebooks, it's not iPads, it's not desktops, it's not laptops, it's not cell phones, it's all those devices that I think the perfect classroom actually has between student devices, that's a good look for you, um, student devices and school purpose devices, you know, 15 options uh, for, for, for creating, and our students need to be encouraged to be able to move from platform to platform without getting stuck on what doesn't work. Chromebooks are a great example of this, um, but I just got an email from an administrator in Montana asking if Chromebooks can be used in context of one of our programs, and my answer is always yes, except that you know, be sure that you're helping your students understand that there's no Microsoft Word installed on a Chromebook and how it is then they can do the basic productivity tasks that we really, really rely on computers for. Word processing, um, uploading files, um, uh, creating video, whatever that process looks like, you know, we have to work together to make sure students have that cognizance. And in a multi-platform environment, which I really think we should all be moving towards, that that's really possible if you if you are busy, you know, wringing your hands because Chromebooks don't do this or iPads don't do that. Um, I think you're missing the boat. Like I think you, it's it's not one of these devices. It's really all. So let's talk about Amazon a little bit. And yes. I'll admit that I have not read as much. I know with NCCE, even at your conference, you're, you're privy to a little bit more about that. So Amazon made some announcements. Yep. Um, what, what, how is that relevant for us? Um, well, um, I think probably the, um, uh, the most impressive one, and I'm stalling because I want to make sure I get the name right, um, it is Amazon uh, Inspire is the name of the platform. And uh, at first, I was a little meh about this, not because it doesn't have potential, but because it felt like they were a bit late to this game. But they announced that they will be opening up a marketplace um, this fall where students, or I'm sorry, teachers can share resources 
for free on that platform. And for those of you, and I know that Wes has is, is, is certainly experienced this, um, where you've published a book on the Amazon um, uh, digital publishing platform, it's going to look very similar to that in which you're going to claim authorship, you're going to put in metadata, you're going to um, probably in this case do things like key it to standards and that sort of thing. And to be clear, it's not a marketplace because it's, it's all intended to be openly shared resources. This is not a direct replacement for teachers paying teachers, for example, because um, there's no there's no money changing. So hands. I could put my free hopscotch book out there. Exactly, yeah. precisely, right? Um, or if you have a PowerPoint that you like that is openly shareable, or if you have a lesson plan, or you have spelling worksheets, or whatever your concept is there. Um, at first, I thought this seemed a little late to the game to me because obviously we have a lot of great OER search engines now. It's very much a part of, I think, the infrastructure of, of resource sharing online. But there is one thing here that that is probably the, the biggest part of this that may not be a reality for six to eight months after it's announced, but the key to Amazon is it connects resources together. So think about... You uh, like this book. You yeah, like this exactly, book. Exactly, right? Like this lesson was successful for you. Try this lesson. Or this resource um, is popular with users that also like what you're downloading. And the, the ratings structure, um, the really quite amazing um, uh, recommendation engine that, that comes with Amazon makes this really a lot better than other options for searching for open education resources. And so, um, you know, I, 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 every conference I come to that's EdTech related, there's always OER advocates here. Um, I'm obviously one. I've spoken on this issue at conferences before. I'm interested in it. We use a lot of OER as part of my day job. But there always seems to be a disconnect here between the amazing things that are available and the day-to-day -day classroom teacher or the curriculum director in a school district. And I think this, once again, provides another opportunity to empower teachers to utilize resources that are not um, not otherwise uh, uh, or not otherwise um, readily available because they require too much searching so big deal I think yeah and and how about sharing right sharing yep. is so important um, my wife and I are on uh, got, got on a bandwagon for inside and outside sharing saying that we need students to be sharing more and everybody needs a place to put their stuff and not just to turn in the assignment but to build a portfolio of work but then we also need to be working towards sharing outside and being able to you know have students get that authentic audience and be able to um, you know just just have a broader reach and, and do real work right authentic work not just for the grade and it goes in the circular file but hey what you know Shelly went to a session yesterday on uh, social justice and, and uh, looking at how kids are engaged with their community. I, I, we didn't actually hear the entire keynote today, but the, the Princeton professor was, was talking about things like our schools becoming laboratories for social justice and for advocacy and, and you know, the importance of imagination, the importance of creativity, and the importance of equity. Hello, we have equity problems in schools in the United States, and we don't, I don't think, have champions that are getting the attention that we should be giving them for those kinds of issues. So OER probably has a dark side, too. I hadn't realized how low Utah is on the educational funding side of things. Yeah. And, you know, I think of David Wiley and his great TED Talk about, about OER, you know, it shouldn't be an excuse for saying, eh, we don't, you know, we don't need to fund those schools. Right. But I'm, uh, you know, this is Amazon we're talking about, yeah. right? We're not talking about the mom and pop, the, the one time, you know, the, hey, I'm a, I'm a new venture capitalist and got an idea and, and have some folks putting money in. We're talking Amazon.com. 
really anything that Amazon or Apple or Google are doing, and, and Microsoft is a huge player in the game too, which maybe we can talk a little bit about about them. I, I don't know as much about news that they've shared, but I think it's I think it's exciting to see. I also think that the, the overarching theme here is sharing, yeah, and that we need to continue to work. To, to share ourselves, what we're learning and what we're doing, encouraging others to, and overcoming that fear factor. Because the fear factor is huge. There are a lot of levels of it. And, you know, if, if we can, can encourage people to overcome the fear factor and then share their stories of how sharing has been transformational for them. Oh my gosh, look at this lesson that I got. And look at this person I've connected to in this way that my kids are doing things that they wouldn't have done if, you know, so-and-so hadn't shared. Right. Th those things, I think, were really important. And then Amazon, the other thing that, that Amazon has been really pushing, this has been for, I, I've seen them several times now at National Stuff, um, obviously, Amazon Web Services, which is their their cloud-based hosting uh, infrastructure, which is the most popular cloud-based hosting infrastructure on earth. Um, and it's it's also if you start digging a little bit into Amazon's books, it's where they're make, making most of their profit right now. Able to offer you know amazing, uh, powerful servers um, in the cloud for much cheaper than hosting them yourself, and then the more they do, the more profitable it becomes, the cheaper it becomes, yada, yada, yada. But they are pushing that education. I think you're going to hear more about that in coming weeks and months as they find ways to plug in servers into uh, desktop and, and, and mobile devices, whether it's serving up applications or finding a way to really plug in to make more efficient infrastructures for, for K-12 schools. And so um, they're certainly talking about that on the vendor floor. They have a huge booth that uh, is, is trying to help people kind of wrap their brain around Amazon web services and what it can provide. Um, I know that that uh, as part of my day job, we do spend some time utilizing their infrastructure for projects would be the best way of describing it, but we, other than our vendors use Amazon web services, we ourselves are not direct customers of that. My guess is, is if you use any web service, a good percentage of those are hosted on the Amazon cloud somewhere, but I think you will hear more in the coming days and months um, related to you know things that are awesome that you can turn on turnkey from Amazon. And I'll do a shout out to James Deaton, who is the director of technology for OneNet in Oklahoma City, a uh, friend and, and, and honestly one of the smartest people. He was right up there with you, Jason, as far as incredible knowledge. You just want to learn from these people. He turned me onto the Amazon Cloud maybe four or five years ago with something called CloudFront. Because if your WordPress site would get, you know, Reddited, you posted onto Reddit, or if it would go viral for some reason, it would quickly reach its capacity to serve pages and it would become in inaccessible. So one of the things that you can do is use what's called a content delivery network or a CDN and that allows you to basically have other servers that are that are serving up static versions of your pages and so your site doesn't go down. Um, since then, as a side note, if you're interested, I use a caching um, plugin that's free called Comet Cache and it creates basically static snapshots of pages and it dramatically um, speeds up page loads. Anyway, that was my introduction to the Amazon Cloud. So when I ended up needing to change providers, one of the things that's challenging about podcasts is where do you put them? You know, with video, we'll put them on YouTube. We'll put it on Google Drive. Audio doesn't work really well on Google Drive as far as podcasting so far. Maybe that's something we need to tell the, the Google folks, actually. So I decided when I had to move, and this was traumatic, you know, move uh, hundreds of podcasts over to another new server. I'm going to move it over to Amazon. At one point, I was concerned about it filtering and that being blocked. But I think most people that listen to podcasts are probably not listening in school. And they're now probably you know, downloading it on their device, on their home Wi-Fi or over their 4G LTE. So 
I am now putting all of my podcasts, including these, on the Amazon Cloud. It costs a few pennies a week. I mean, it depends. And then, yeah, I'm not fearful that we're going, you know, viral anytime soon with the EdTech Situation Room. But it's something that a lot of teachers don't know about. Right. And in terms of digital literacy and possibilities, having access to the Amazon cloud and being able to go global at scale, meaning, yeah, yeah, we've got a few viewers here, but if we ramp up, you know, they've got server capacity. I mean, this is truly huge in terms of STEM and careers and, and coding and all of those kind of things. So... I'm excited to see Amazon entering in, you know, at at a greater level than just the Kindle level. And I'm excited to also see how maybe with coding initiatives and STEM initiatives, uh, we can look at what what this means. And also in terms of apps, I, I know there was something that IBM is doing right now with their cloud. And it has to do, I don't know if we talked about Swift Playground and app development. I think I heard about it at iPadpalooza. But there's some ways now with Swift Playground and with app development where you can end up using some of IBM's cloud and Amazon. It's a big thing that app developers know about, but I don't think most teachers and and even computer science teachers maybe are familiar with to the degree they should be. Yep. And, um, you know, and, and the fact that, that Amazon is becoming such an important part of, of the infrastructure for personal delivery of content, personal delivery of, of, of physical items, I, I, that fits within their infrastructure related schools as well. So I think that's a really exciting development on their part. Okay. Have you spent much time in the vendor hall so far? I have. I spent uh, about two hours there yesterday. I had a couple meetings with uh, existing vendors that uh, the Digital Academy works with. Um, we also spent, uh, or I also spent some time uh, kind of finding new folks. I would say if anything seemed new from this year to past years, I mean, the same stuff is up there. There's a number of telepresence robots, um, um, which are, I think are amusing would be the way I describe them. Um, and um, I saw, and there's a lot of, you know, cases, security, powering up devices, which I'm glad that the, their vendors are there, although I don't have any need for those particular pieces. The one thing that seemed very new to me this year is that VR is everywhere. So um, I would say probably one in ten vendors had some kind of VR play, whether it was content or was physical devices. Obviously, it was things like you know the the Google uh, the Google um, cardboard initiatives. That was I saw at least a half dozen or so. Did you see what I was about to do? I was about to touch <laughs> my screen to try to say share the last three. Sorry about that. It was that was a tablet error. Can't do that. Sorry. Not on a Mac. No, not yet. Not yet. So, um, so I think that's a uh, that's an interesting piece. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I'm always entertained by um, software vendors that are that are uh, here. Um, you know, obviously Google is all over the place. Um, uh, some of the creation apps, the, the ones I really like, um, the TechSmith stuff, Snagit, and uh, Camtasia Studio have an aggressive presence here. But there are still quite a few people that are selling, you know, desktop software. And I'm reminded of the kind of last gasping years when uh, um, Worldbook was at conferences. Oh, yeah. Selling uh, oh. online services or CDs. And they can still yeah. cart around with them the most recent edition of the print encyclopedias. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that it is a... Um, it, it's going to quickly become irrelevant, the desktop software um, uh, phenomenon. You're going to have to move with the times and yeah. change with the times. And, and not being able to, to look at apps and the cloud and, and how you get onto people's screens right. is pretty pretty important. And uh, uh, the my partner in crime here is, is, is Mike, who I, I pair around or pal around with. He was telling me yesterday, and I don't know if that's a... Um, 
Um, I don't know if that's a uh, if it was announced here or just announced, but I guess Kid Picks is apparently moving into Kid a new is version. Coming back? Uh, apparently, it is. Kid and, Picks is back. Um, I thought that was an interesting phenomenon. Um, that I wonder where he heard this. Because hmm. um, the website, well, the website has flash on it, so back I can't see it. Who remembers Kid Picks? And Oregon Trail. I know. I know. Um, the cool thing about Oregon Trail is you can find like a, at least a half dozen legal ways of playing it online. So, um, so yeah, I mean that that's certainly a factor here. And um, you know, the hardware is great. I love seeing the hardware, um, but that I think the most interesting stuff here really is the the software applications. Mm. And there are a lot of folks here that are really pushing great web-based platforms for things. You seen anything interesting? Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about the keynote just briefly. Mm -hmm. um, Michael Keku, who mm -hmm. is a futurist, and I have one of his books that I've read part of, was the, the opening keynote. And I actually uh, smuggled in our kids who are here as well to watch in one of the, the front lounge there. It's simulcaster on every flat screen TV that's around the convention center. So you uh, you can walk in walk in without without having a badge. Um, well, I'll, I'll ask you for this because there were there were you know he's a physicist, a yeah. theoretical physicist, and so he's talking about all kinds of futuristic. Look at Sylvia, Sylvia. Um, he's a future. Sorry, this just happens in this day. Squirrel, squirrel. Um, talking about you know Star Trek level you know tricorders and all kinds of things, but he, he got a very significant thing wrong because he said to teachers, no, technology will never take your job because 90% of all students that take online courses drop out, so don't worry. This is like Carl Sagan venturing outside of, of astronomy and astrophysics, you know, making claims about theology and, I don't know, he, was, he got criticized in some, in some respects for going beyond. I don't know, he's a futurist. There are there's research in MOOCs that there's a high dropout rate, but and I'm going to put you on the I don't want to put you oh, on the spot. That's okay. I have strong you, opinions about you, this. You've so. got to you know uh, roll out the data, but but I know by because of being a, a director of distance learning at a university college of education for five years, as well as just doing other reading, that that is not representative of distance learning overall. Correct. So that was a huge thing that he got wrong, and here he's talking to you know, 25,000 educators and, and yeah, there are folks that are losing their jobs and will lose their jobs because of distance learning. It's not going to be a fit for everybody, but he misrepresented facts in saying that 90% of all students, you know, online, um, Drop out. Right. I'm sure you have nothing to say on that. Now. Yeah. Well, and and it, part of it is that, um, and and the, the hard part for me about that particular comment is I agree and disagree with him. Like if we're talking about just about MOOCs, they I I, I think I can easily declare now because the research is is in agreement with me. And by the way, I I called this before the research was available, right? Like, everyone was framing this as the revolution to, to fix schools, and I get a little tired of the fix schools uh, mantras uh, uh, that, that get pushed by people that are looking for these silver bullets, but I knew that minus a relationship with a teacher, a lot of students would struggle in that format. I also think it's a little more complex than that, too, because a lot of people took MOOCs having no intention on finishing them, right? Like, they were a free, you know, free is free is free is free, right? And, and, and not to make assumptions, we say MOOC, massive open online yeah, course, yeah. hundreds or thousands of students taking a class with minimal to no instructor direct interaction. Right. 
you know, multiple choice, some advanced algorithm things probably, maybe breaking into groups, working with, with partners, but we're talking about a, a model that what? That, that was last time I was in Denver for Educause was, was MOOC, you know, um, Hype, I right, guess. It was right. like five years ago. Well, and the thing that we didn't do with MOOCs that I think could be very useful is that, I mean, we, we dismissed them because of the data. And, and to, be, to be clear, I don't think MOOCs are a solution to anything. I think they're another great example of a resource, but they're not a solution for anything. I think the real, the, the real interesting piece of that is that I don't think we took enough of that data away from what was working in MOOCs and then used that to evolve um, what I think of online learning. I don't think of online learning and think of MOOCs. I think of online learning and thinking of opportunities to connect instructors and students over distances in order to provide resources that aren't available uh, otherwise. So in context of my day job, Montana Digital Academy State Virtual School, we're a supplemental program funded by the state to provide access to students in rural areas. And as it turns out, we know that our teachers that are regularly engaging with students have better outcomes than teachers that are treating it with a more hands-off approach. And, uh, you know, there's there's uh, some research about why this is the case that kind of drills down into this. And some of it seems like it's based off of a, a, a big enough uh, group to make consumptions of it. Sometimes it's not. But from our, our from our, our, our on-the-ground experience, he's right that you can't throw kids in a um, an information-rich environment, even if it's stages a learning environment, and expect positive outcomes. And so... You know, that's where I think, again, and I, you, you frame that very interestingly that I think is, is to the heart of it. Like, you, you can't group all ed tech together into one broad stroke. You can't group all online learning into one broad stroke. And in fact, when he says things like online learning is a visible failure, that's I mean, that's painting with a very broad brush that, that I think and is... And it's totally is out of pace with reality, yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is unfortunate at the quote-unquote premier technology event yeah. of yeah, education technology. So. He did make several comments, though, that I think are are to the heart of what why things are changing. Like, I've always been a big, uh, a big um, uh, I guess, cautionary speaker related to overemphasizing the availability of facts and not teaching some of the core information that I think is required for students to get to upper uh, upper divisions of, of, of critical thinking. It requires a, a good knowledge piece of the facts first. One of the struggles I have is that you know, even though it's, it's quicker than it used to be, it's not instantaneous and it requires a lot of um, of, of background knowledge. This is kind of uh, uh, cognitive scientist Dan Willingham stuff related to understanding what you understand is only understandable if you have the basics down and then you could start to do more advanced or evolutionary things with that information. Um, his, his proposition, which I think does change things a little bit, is that when it becomes more instantaneous, and I think that we are getting closer to that with things like digital personal assistance, um, with auto-correction in a search engine, that even though those tools are really amazing in 2016, 10 years from now, those are going to be, you know, really not that impressive. And so when we're talking about how educational environments will change, um, it's not about now, it's about what it's probably going to be soon enough, right? And, you know, I do think about, um, I made this point a couple weeks ago in, in, a, in a talk I gave in Montana that, you know, we're, we're beyond 21st century schools. 21st century is VHS tapes and um, uh, flip phones and uh, you know, T9 texting like that. Those are all phenomenons of, of the distance past now in classrooms. And we have to be thinking more proactively than that. And so I think that's where um, it's difficult, I think, sometimes to plan around that because things are changing so quickly. But... Um, 
their their preparation for that time starts now is, is forever. There's always a tension for conference keynote speakers. But there's a there's a need for both informing and educating and entertaining. Um, and you know, a great keynote speaker will strike a good balance, in my view. You know, between those. Right. Um, so. One of my thoughts about the keynote speaker was the Matt Damon movie Elysium, right? Which is where the wealthy are living out in space in orbit in this, you know, utopia, and you know the rest of the world is fighting and, and trying to resolve the poverty issues and just really, you know, suffering and not doing really well. Um, there's a wonderful book that I read a number of years ago, and I'll put this in the show notes. It's by Virginia Postrel, and it's called The Future and Its Enemies. Actually, when I tweeted that, Adam Rogers, who's still with us live, uh, tweeted me back. And it talks about how Walt Disney and the Disney Corporation uh, with uh, Epcot and, and Tomorrowland, and, and the Jetsons too, right, have been envisioning what the future is going to be. And it's always going to be flying cars and it's always going to be video conferencing on your watch and, you know, different things like that. Um, Keiku was probably a lot on the Jetsons, Tomorrowland side of things. I think we need to be talking not in utopian terms about the future and technology, but talking about things like Robert Putnam, who my wife has got his book called Our Kids, who is talking about the need to have an ethic for public education and educating all students and not imagining that technology is going to be the silver bullet that's going to solve our problems. Uh, we have plenty of vendors here and other, where, other places that would really like to you know, see us uh, spend a ton of money on technology tools and software and, and have uncertified folks who are kind of managing learning but not necessarily you know, teaching students and having those relationships, etc. So, I don't know. I think it was a thought-provoking keynote. I think there were some good things that he shared. Of course, you're not going to be able to get everything right. There were some significant things. I mean, he said the words mentally retarded in a joke. That is so wrong. Um, you know, we just don't use those words when we talk about human beings today. And I'm not a huge political correctness advocate, but I am a human being advocate. So, you know, I don't know. There, there were some missteps there. But I think overall, getting us excited about the future and thinking about those possibilities is, is one thing. But I'd love to see SD get more more educational technology teachers, you know, yep. getting up and speaking because, yes, we can be entertained, but we're, from my standpoint, I'm looking for somebody who strikes a good balance between, yes, we laugh and yes, we're entertained, but we really get some, you know, challenged and we learn something new. And especially, you know, I, I don't think we've seen a keynote speaker yet who's passionate about student voice and student right. work. I'd love to see that. But, you know, it was it was a good kickoff. And I, I actually want to go hopefully catch the archive of the one today mm -hmm. because yeah. she read her speech and it felt very kind of churchy. I mean, she was on fire in a good way and really challenging us to think about, you know, what, what are we doing and how are we uh, not just, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid as we talk about with Google and with shiny, shiny devices, but how are we working to with our students to, to, to make a better tomorrow. And that involves using technology tools, but it doesn't involve sort of having a love affair with them. But it always happens at ISTE. You know, some people yeah. call it a boat show. and Yeah. So we, we run that. We run the gauntlet of that. Right. Here. Well, and that's why you have to. I mean, like, I, I, I love technology, obviously, and I'm an advocate for it. And I, my day job involves uh, implementation of that in a very high and, and uh, uh, hopefully engaging level for kids. But in the end, 
happening, more more I hear here, I end up abandoning than I buy into because I think it's important to bring a bit of kind of scholarly cynicism to to this stuff, right? And and the criticism of, of any conference as you know a trade show or boat show um, has to come with that, right? Like if you go upstairs to the vendor floor, there are clearly things yesterday I saw that's very excited about. There are clearly things that I felt like I was either either being sold a bill of goods that couldn't be delivered, or the other piece that that I feel is those true that that they are sell, selling really silver bullets, and that's not something that's productive at all inside of the. Um, uh, inside uh, any educational decision-making process. It's just not something that's true. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left, uh, 12 minutes left. I think I started maybe a minute or so late if we're going to stick with our, our hour show. Um, I want to talk briefly about Seesaw, at least, and mm-hmm. then maybe if you have another topic, then we'll do sort of weeks of the week, and that's probably it, or whatever, our, our picks of the week. Um, Seesaw, if you do not know about this, this is the app, the one app to rule them all, I think, in terms of the iPad and also on other platforms. I love students being able to record their voices, being able to create media, being able to share that. For the iPad media camps that I'll lead in July, we're going to use Seesaw as an inside sharing environment so that all the participants as they create different kinds of video and, and different kinds of products, uh, basically that are saved in their camera roll, can then flip those right into Seesaw to be shared with the class, to be able to be commented on and, and be able to even be remixed if people want to, you know, grab them and, and use them. So Seesaw is here. Uh, we, I'm, that's one of the folks in the vendor hall I'm visiting. Uh, we were vi- talking with one of their people today because it's free for educators, but they have a school edition if you want to have, you know, one of the things they're getting right is that parents can download their students' portfolios to keep them all, even on the free version, and that you can archive a class, but it's still going to be remain accessible. Uh, and back to what you had said earlier about vendors listening to educators, if you're a vendor, and, and, and you know that that's it. That's what you need to do is listen to. I mean, obviously you have to monetize and not go the way of posturous. Yeah. You know, figure out how to how to make your way financially um, because we hate it when those awesome tools that go away it makes us sad. We mourn them at events like this. Um, but listening to educators and then really responding to the needs of the classroom. Um, which involves answering that question, how do I turn this in? And I also think going beyond, how is this assignment turned in, right? Because Google Classroom does a great job of that. And that is kind of what school is focused on, right? How do you turn the assignment? But but school is, as our keynote speaker today was reminding us, so much more than just, I turned in my assignments, I got my grade. Here, let, let's trade you know, my time and effort for your little bit of attention and, and your assessment grade on my report card. Uh, high quality education is potentially transforming your mind and it's grown through a relationship with the teacher, etc. So I think portfolios play a huge role in that. I'm excited to see Seesaw listening to educators. I definitely want to give them a shout out and I'm excited to continue using that with teachers on our campus because it was one of those tools this year with, with elementary where some teachers used it and others talked about it and then you know parents were getting that text message when something was added to the portfolio. So 
really, really good stuff. And although I don't know that they've come out with any exciting new announcements of, um, of features and things like that, it's one of these companies that, that keeps on iterating and keeps on getting better. But from a design perspective, and I learned this as far as like Apple, it's layered complexity, right? VoiceThread is a great example. There's a lot of choices, but you don't see all of them at the same time. Google embodies this, you know, within the docs environment as far as you've got these choices, and then there's more. Seesaw is doing that as well. And uh, I don't know, I'm probably more excited about Seesaw than anything else in terms of media creation and sharing and, and how it can empower teachers. Yep. So. And then I think the thing that maybe I'm most excited about is that um, we're getting to a point where it, it's less of a conversation about what platform you're using and more about the tool just being available in multiple locations so that you can not worry about those questions. Um, Ten years ago, that conversation was, you know, kind of a Apple versus Microsoft. Now it's Apple versus Microsoft versus Google versus mobile versus desktop. I mean, that that and I, I, almost almost none of that is is really a factor anymore because people are really developing to, you know, all devices as opposed to one or two. And part of that's the web itself, right? I mean, the web is so functional now, and with HTML5 and and all the pieces that make that happen, but. Um, that's and that's something we should be demanding out of the tools that we use. It's usable everywhere and not under um, you know one particular platform. Um, obviously, you know productivity is important, workflow is important. Um, uh, Wes and I were, were talking before about how difficult it used to be just to get sometimes computers on a network or to see get access to a printer and the 75 pages of instructions to do X, Y, and Z. Um, that seems to be so much less of a factor than it used to be, and it's going to help technology be a real tool in schools. Absolutely. Okay, hey, we got to do our oblique fact from the past. Um, so, our family is going to go offline for about a week and go camping. So, back in probably 90 or 89 or 90, uh, with friends, I, we got to, got to hike to the top of Mount Albert is the tallest 14er in Colorado. I was much fitter then than I am today, but I'm excited that we're going to be going back to that same kind of area in Colorado. And I think amidst technology and all of this, it, you know, how many screens are there right now in front of us, yeah. Jason? There's a cast of... Yeah, a 3D printer walked by a couple yeah. minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, it was right. really a I mean, thing of beauty. Thinking about our own personal... I, I, I did a, a BYOD yesterday. Shout out to Note to Self podcast. And... And I sh actually, I shared the articles from what three, two or three sessions ago with Google Design, you know, the Google ethicists talking about how you know app designers are, are are exploiting our minds because they're making apps like slot machines with notifications. Thinking about taking a break, thinking about being intentional yeah. with our screens, thinking about what we're going to choose to consume and how we're going to moderate. I mean, it's kind of scary thinking about this, you know, being plugged into the brain. It's exciting at one level and being a connected educator and social media allows for that at one level. But one of my biggest <laughs> sort of ahas, and this is also because there's amazing food places here, Maggio's, I think, is the Italian place down the road best Italian food I've ever had in my life and it was so tempting to overeat and overeating can be it can be good but you know you, you pay for it later wow ISTE can it, I don't know if it, yeah. you can avoid it being this overwhelmed but taking some time out and then thinking about you know when are we going to turn off I think we need to become more nuanced than just oh aren't those screens horrible isn't technology so bad right which I definitely hear from from a segment of folks to the, the opposite extreme, which is it, it's Kool-Aid, it's all good, yeah. there are no, no good. 
no bad sense. And I'll add something else to that that actually, it's funny because I, 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 to be clear, I enjoyed the opening keynote speech. I do think there were places where that there was a lack of understanding about what schools look like and what education looks like, but I'll give you another example of that. And it's actually a problem with vendor floor, too. There's a bunch of telepresence robots upstairs um, that are we, we think are funny at the Digital Academy. Um, we keep joking that we're just going to send the tele-robot in someday um, as opposed to showing up for work. In fact, the boss asked me in text message yesterday, well, great, that means we have to buy another parking space for the U. Um, but the, the other thing that he said that, that really stuck with me, and it's along that theme, was that, you know, imagine this future where a student that's sick is at home and they're just in your classroom anyways because they're sick. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want them in my classroom. I want them to be home, not sick, right? Like, I want them to be resting and to disconnect for that time so they don't feel an obligation to, you know, schools are turning to, especially uh, elementary classrooms are turning into incredibly intense learning locations. Somebody said they did away with all the snow days. Come yeah, on, that's yeah. a bad sign. Yeah, yeah, that is a bad sign. Um, <laughs> Um, and you know, like I, I think we need to, we need to have. Um, um, I don't know. I wonder. If, I've got audio here in case yeah. we did, but that's not a good sign. Go ahead. Keep okay, on. so um, the uh, uh, the thing that, that that I keep coming back to, and it's something that I'm, I'm now I, I now present sessions on this. I work with teachers on this. I've actually advised some folks that wanted more. Um, um, uh, more access to these types of things to, to think about, but we have to be teaching more consciously that the technology is not be all and end all. Um, and it's important to disconnect. It's important to get your phone out of your bedroom, to, um, uh, you know, to, to disconnect for, for 8 to 10, 12 hours a day, to turn it on airplane mode once in a while and just listen to the music on your phone without having endless numbers of, um, of uh, notifications bother you from engaging with things. Uh, maybe it's if you're if you're reading on your phone, that's super great. Maybe you turn off the the cell phone itself for a while, so you're not getting text messages to distract you from that important educational experience. And so it's something that I'm thinking a lot about, and I really think that that uh, uh, West really uh, hits the nail on the head there. That it's incomplete to say that cell phones are distracting to the learning environment when they're such useful tools for learning. But sometimes you have to make more overt instruction to students about when is the right time to go to a phone and when it's not, and when it's time to put your phone away and focus just on what you can directly do with content or with problems. And that discussion, I don't think, is happening enough at, 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 a, um, at a conference level, at a school level, sometimes at a classroom level. And so that's something that I would encourage people to carefully think about. All right. Well, I'm glad we are recording our iPhone backup because our Blab has uh, shut off. And so maybe we'll just have a partial video version and a combined audio version. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Uh, Jason, where can people find you? Um, I am on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach, and I also blog regularly at the Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And my day job is I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school in fabulous Montana and U.S. And I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. And I'll be updating iPad Media Camp stuff a little bit here in July. Uh, my main life professional priority is going to be after vacation our student information system transition, but we have some iPad media camps coming up and that's going to be good and it's going to be wonderful to take some of this learning from ISTE and apply it with some of the teachers because it's always a changing landscape. So sorry for, for uh, Adam and, and any else, anyone else that was watching the video archive offline late, but uh, I'm glad we had the backup. So there's your last lesson learned. Always make a backup. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Wes.
Thanks for listening to another amazing episode of the EdTech Situation Room with your hosts Jason and Wes. Remember to subscribe to us on Twitter and Blab, and access episode show notes on edtechsr.com, slash links. Content on the EdTech Situation Room is shared under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. Subscribe to our audio podcast feed in your favorite mobile podcatcher app, and check out our archived show videos on YouTube, the EdTech Situation Room where technology news meets educational analysis.